Sundays from today. But if you've turned, we are in Luke chapter 3, and we'll begin by reading that, and then I will pray. So Luke chapter 3, this is the story of Jesus when he comes to John the Baptist and gets baptized. Luke chapter 3, beginning in verse 21. Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. Let's pray. O Lord, those are the words that we long to hear, that you are well pleased with us. And Lord, we give thanks, we rejoice that that can be true, not because we have been perfect, but that your Son was in our place. And as we look at this wonderful picture you gave us in baptism, may we come afresh to delight in what you've done for us through Christ, and may we see how baptism is such a beautiful picture of what you have done for us. It's in your Son's name we pray. Amen. Well, as we've stated a few times, we're taking a break from the gospel according to Luke, in at least our expositional look through it, and looking at the topic of baptism. I don't believe since I've been here we've preached on this. I wanted to make sure that we were all on the same page. Well, what is baptism? Why do we baptize? And as you probably know, baptism is a very controversial topic among Christians. I would say, well, at least all Christians agree that we should be baptized. But groups like the Salvation Army and the Quakers say, no, baptism was only for the first followers of Jesus. We don't need to do that today. And then we could say, okay, well, maybe we get everyone who says all Christians should be baptized. But then we would quickly have disagreements on, well, when should you be baptized? At what age? How should you be baptized? Why should you be baptized? And even how should it be done? And this isn't just among people who are trying to hold to the faith and then those who have rejected it a long time ago but still want the label Christian. Even faithful Bible-believing Christians disagree on these issues. Thus, so this is a very important topic. It's one in which we don't all agree. And yet we can't just ignore it. We can't just take it, well, we're only going to focus on the essentials. We're only going to focus on mere Christianity, and we're not going to worry about the rest. You know, sometimes people take that idea, well, if we talk about doctrine, that's just going to divide us. What we need to have is love. That will unite us. And yet sometimes we need to divide from people. You know, if there's someone who wanted in a couple of weeks came and came to our new members class and said, oh, I love your church. I'm just glad that y'all let me come and not believe in the Trinity. We would say, well, no, we aren't going to let you come and be a part of our body. You're welcome to come and worship with us. And we hope you come to see the truth that God is Trinity. But we are going to divide with you and fellowship as members unless you hold to this truth. Now, obviously, baptism is not of the same level of importance as the Trinity. But we can't just go, oh, well, once we start talking about doctrine, we're going to be divisive. We can talk about these things in loving and charitable ways. And we need to because Jesus told us, go into the, all the world, making disciples, baptizing them. Well, that means something. And if we're going to be obedient to our Savior, we need to know, well, what does that mean? How do we do that? And so this morning, we're going to look at first Jesus' two baptisms. And then looking at Jesus' two baptisms, we'll then be able to understand, well, what does that mean for us? And 
which baptism will it be for me? And so here, our first point, this is in the bulletin on the back. We're going to look at these verses in Luke chapter 3, Jesus' first baptism. And as you remember, as we've gone through Luke's gospel, at the beginning, it was going back and forth. They would tell a story of Mary, and they would tell a story of John, uh, uh, Zechariah, and Elizabeth. And then they would tell a story about Jesus, and they would tell a story about John the Baptist. And it was going back and forth between the two. And then it comes to this moment where it talks about John going in the wilderness and him baptizing people, and Jesus shows up. And yet John is shocked. John the Baptist says to Jesus, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? John recognized what many people have since that time. Why is sinless Jesus coming to John for a baptism for the repentance of sins? Why would he come and do this? Well, Jesus says in Matthew 3.15, he came to be baptized to fulfill all righteousness. You know, Jesus came not only to take our punishment upon him, he also came to give us his righteous life. He came to give us all the right things that he did so that when God sees us, he doesn't just see us as clean, as forgiven. He also sees us as positively righteous. That every good thing Jesus ever did he sees that in us. And thus, Jesus did many righteous things that make little sense at first. Why would Jesus go to talk to the teachers when he's what they're talking about? Why would Jesus celebrate the Passover when he is the Passover lamb? Why would Jesus be baptized when he is the one who brings cleansing himself? And Jesus is here saying he did this to fulfill all righteousness. Or in other words, to perfectly live the righteous life that his people did not. And even the events after Jesus' baptism, they show that he was a righteous, sinless person because he comes up, and as you know, the Holy Spirit descends like a dove, and from heaven the Father says, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. This is a unique event where the heavens are opened. You know, it's a sign of God giving his unique and special care, saying in a unique way I'm showing that Jesus is my beloved son. You know, he speaks, leaving no doubt that Jesus is the one that he endorses, that Jesus is the royal son of God. He's the Messiah prophesied about. He's the suffering servant whom upon the Father would lay the iniquity of us all. You know, this is like a great inauguration event. Jesus' ministry is beginning, and it's being inaugurated, shown that he has the position of leadership, that he has the position of authority, that he has the position of God's anointing. Now, as we went through Luke's gospel, we saw this isn't new or unique. We've been seeing this angelic announcement that Jesus would be born, a miraculous conception. Then angels visited shepherds, and then there were prophetic statements, and on and on, showing that Jesus was unique. And here, God the Father leaves no doubt that this is my beloved Son. Now this can be confusing because it's not as though Jesus was the leading candidate. That he was competing with all these other people and Jesus goes, sorry, God the Father looks down and goes, okay, I've evaluated, I've had the interviews, and I'm going with the one from Nazareth. No, Jesus always was and always will be the one and only Son of God the Father. And yet here, this is being clearly identified for the people there so they and then us in the future would know. And not just God the Father, but also the Spirit. 
showing the whole Trinity affirming that this was their plan. Your Jesus' first baptism was about showing heavenly acceptance. God is saying, yes, I accept this one who has come to identify with his people, to represent them, to live for them, and die for them. God is not a king who lives up in his ivory tower and doesn't get concerned about the people below. He came and dwelled with us. And he came to make us new. And so Jesus' first baptism is showing us that he came and was accepted. And this is something we all deal with. We wonder, if people really knew me, would they accept me? If they knew what I did this last week, or what I thought, or even what happened on the car right here, would they really want me to be a part of them? Or would they distance themselves? Would they not really accept me? You may have had parents or friends or loved ones who were supposed to be there for you, and yet they were constantly attacking you, berating you, telling you you were such a screw-up, you're such a mess-up. Why do you always do that? You're always messing things up. And you wonder, maybe you say those things to yourself. You look in the mirror and you go, oh, I'm a waste. I'm a screw-up. Why? No one would really love me if they knew me. And yet God sees all those same things. He actually sees more than anyone else sees or even you see. And he says, if you are in Christ, you are my beloved child in whom I am well pleased. God accepts us not because of our perfection. He's accepting us because of Christ. And the amazing thing is, this isn't because we've been so faithful to seek God or we've been really good at obeying God or anything that we've done. It's out of his love he made a way that he might accept us. Your Jesus came down, the heavens were open, and God sought you. Your Jesus was working and living for you. He was good enough because we are not. And so we now seek him not to earn his pleasure, but because he's already given us his pleasure. We seek him because he first sought us. And we don't have to wonder, well, is this just wishful thinking? Is this what I want to project on God because I want to feel this way? Well, no, we see here this heavenly confirmation, this heavenly acceptance at Jesus' first baptism, showing that we can be accepted. However, this was not Jesus' only baptism. We read of a second in Luke chapter 12, our second point in Luke chapter 12, verses 49 to 53. Jesus' second baptism is not about acceptance, it is about rejection, heavenly rejection. So turn to Luke chapter 12, and we'll read verses 49 to 53. There, Jesus says, I came to cast fire on the earth, and would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Do you think that I've come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on in one house, there will be five divided against three. Three against two and two against three. They will be divided father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. So Jesus gives these shocking words that he came to cast fire on the earth. Well, John the Baptist had discussed this before. He talked about the fire of judgment of the one who was coming after him. And then 
he had continued in Luke chapter 3, verse 17. He was talking about Jesus' coming ministry, and he said, His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. This is a revealing, judging fire through which division will come. It will be revealed who is pure and who is true and who is just chaff and will be burned up. Jesus regularly divided people into two groups, the righteous and the unrighteous, the wheat and the tares, the sheep and the goats. And Jesus is saying his fire will reveal which camp we belong. The judgment has not yet come, but Jesus is saying that he wishes it would have come. And we see why next, because once that judgment comes, he will have already gone through his baptism, his second baptism. Because Jesus' baptism in the waters of the Jordan by John the Baptist was not his final baptism. That final baptism is made clear in Mark chapter 10. There in verses 38 and 39, Jesus says, Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am to be baptized? So Jesus is talking about a baptism to come. And he's talking about it as though it's some cup. Well, that's Old Testament language. They were to drink the cup of God's wrath. And Jesus is saying what he has to come and take is God's wrath. He will take this on the cross. That is where his second baptism will occur. So in other words, to tie this all together, when Jesus talks about the baptism that he will be baptized with, he's referring to his death on the cross. You know, the most common meaning for the word baptizo, baptize, is to immerse, to bury under. It's like when you dip a cloth in dye, you put it all the way under and you bring it up and the whole thing is changed. Well, Jesus is saying, he was going to go completely under the wrath of God, so to speak. That the judgment would completely fall on him and cover him. He would be inundated with the waters of God's judgment himself. And as Jesus considered this, notice he says, what great distress I have until it is fully accomplished. I mean, yes, Jesus fully obeyed, and yes, he did it for the joy that was set before him, But that doesn't mean there wasn't anguish and turmoil until that point. This all culminated in Gethsemane when he's crying out, my God, my God, if there's any other way, take this cup from me. And then again on the cross, he's crying out the agony of knowing that would happen. And as we look at life, we know we really shouldn't expect anything different. As a soldier prepares to deploy he goes in joy because he wants to protect his loved ones he wants to protect his family and yet he goes in fear because he knows what happens as we go to surgery we go gladly because we want to get better but we go with dread because we know it's going to hurt and so jesus has his face set towards that cross with joy and distress filling his heart because he knows What a horrible time it will be to receive this second baptism. He goes in joy and in sorrow. It will bring our restoration, which brings him joy. But it will mean his alienation from his father, which will bring great distress. It will bring our forgiveness, but it will be his 
punishment. It will give us new life, but it will destroy his life. Yet death will not be the final word. He knows that he will rise again. He will conquer sin and death and the devil. Thus he looks forward to what lies beyond it too. And when Jesus says here in Luke chapter 12, he talks about wanting this to be accomplished. He uses an interesting word. It's the word teleo. It's like a, the goal that you're aiming for. It's when something is finished, when you run through the tape in a race. And Jesus has set his sights on the finish line, so to speak. And then on the cross, in the last gasp, he breaks through the tape. And we see that because in John chapter 19, he cries out, it is finished. And that word is from teleo. It is te telesai. It's saying, I have accomplished it. What he was distressed about, he fully accomplished. He fulfilled his task. He had his mission completed. And then Jesus asked something very interesting. Verse 15, do you think that I have come to give peace on the earth? Now imagine it's not 100 outside, but a brisk 40. At least that's brisk if you live in North Texas. And it's December 24th, Christmas Eve, and it's about 6.30, and you're coming in with sweaters and jackets, and you're looking forward to the Christmas Eve service, and you hear the person talking go, why did Jesus come? You might expect some words like, glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace. Or you might expect, for to us a child is born, to us the son is given, and the government shall be in upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. You would expect us to be declaring that Jesus came to bring peace. So why is Jesus here saying, actually, I didn't come to bring peace? Did, did he not go to the Christmas Eve service? Did he not realize that he was on a peacemaking mission? Did he like have two plans? Like Jesus is going this way and God the Father is going this way. No, it's one plan, except there's what we already saw. There's joy and sorrow. There's distress and hope. And Jesus here is not denying that he brought peace with God. He, he himself said that. John 14, he says, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. Not as the world gives I to you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. And so yes, Jesus came to bring peace, but he also knows when we come to receive that peace, it sometimes spills over into conflict with other people we love. That because of our loyalty to Christ, they are now angry with us. Because of our loyalty to Christ, they want nothing to do with us. And sadly, that has been true for people throughout time. Even today, when some people come to Christ, they are immediately kicked out of their family. You know, that's why baptism is a public declaration of allegiance to Jesus. Yes, trust in Christ is a personal issue, but it's never a private one. Our baptisms may not be in front of massive crowds, but it's never a secret, mysterious event that no one knows about. You know, there is no secret handshakes, no hidden services. 
no secret temples where things go on in which everyone goes, what's going on in there? There's a public declaration, baptism is, of allegiance to Christ. And yet that allegiance Jesus is showing brings division here on earth. We even see that throughout the New Testament, the Apostle Paul. He was the golden boy for the Pharisees until he trusts Christ, and then they want to kill him. And so coming to Christ does mean peace with God and with him. However, we also have to realize the repercussions it may have with others. And so Jesus talks in these verses of divisions of those we love most, family, friends. And so though Jesus has wonderful, encouraging statements, he also challenges us. He's not just a warm, fuzzy, precious moments God that oh makes everything better. At times, it brings conflict and division and rejection. And yet, though this conflict happens, because of it, because we came to Christ, we have peace with God. Peace because we no longer have to face God's wrath. Jesus was immersed in it for us. Thus, our first public act of faith in Christ is to be baptized, showing that what Jesus did for us is being applied to us. His Father will turn his face away from him because he wanted to keep his face on us. You know, Jesus here is not talking in some weird abstract language. He knows that he himself will have this family division. His Father will turn his face from him so that we would never have to have that. And so really this is bringing up an interesting point, and that is that every single person will be baptized. The question is, are you going to be baptized into Christ and have him take the baptism of God's wrath, or are you going to wait and only receive the baptism when you take the cup of God's wrath yourself? You know, there are two sides. Either you'll be immersed in Christ, or you'll be immersed in God's punishment. And so that really leads to the last point, our baptism, which will it be? And we need to drive that home, but it's helpful to pause and go, well, how does all this tie to what baptism is and what's going on? Why we do it, when we do it, and all those things. So first, when we seek to know what baptism is, we see that it's either being accepted by God or being rejected by God, just as we see in Jesus' baptism. The only way we're accepted is if we're identified with Christ through faith in him. Because Jesus' second baptism wasn't the end. He rose again. He conquered sin. He took our punishment. And then, by faith, we're connected to him. This is what Brian read for us earlier, Romans 6, verses 3 and 4. Do you not know that all of us who've been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. We were baptized into Jesus' baptism. He's saying that if we have faith in Christ, whatever he had is now applied to us. We have already, by faith, undergone the baptism of God's wrath through Christ. And this reminds us of a really important point, and that is baptism is not primarily about the person being baptized. Baptism is primarily about God. 
Baptism is a declaration of God's coming for us in Christ. I think a helpful way to think of that is with something many of us have on our fingers, a wedding ring. We often get these confused. We often think, this is how I show people that I'm married. I'm showing other people I'm married. Yet, where did I get this wedding ring? It was given to me after Sarah made promises to me. This is not a declaration of my love to Sarah. That's on her finger. This is Sarah's declaration of her love to me. And so what is baptism? Baptism is God's declaration of love. Now, yes, if I didn't let her slip the ring on my finger, then I wouldn't have it. And if I reject God's love in Christ, well, then I don't have his promise upon me. But I don't walk around going, hey, look how much I love Sarah. Because this is not about me. This is about her. And when we baptize people, it's not about the person there. Yes, it, it brings them in. But our focus should be on what has Christ done for us. He's the one who should be receiving the glory. Baptism is primarily revealing that God has accepted us because we are now identified with Christ. Baptism shows what Jesus did and all the benefits we get by trusting in him. If you have a bicycle or a tire, you know in the middle is a hub. That's the center, and all the spokes come radiating from that. Well, the hub of the wheel is that we are united to Christ. And from that wheel come all these other benefits of baptism. So we could have talked this morning about baptism. You know, baptism is about the repentance of sins. Looked at John's message. Well, that's true, but it's repentance of sins because we're united to Christ. Or we could have talked about how baptism is the washing away of our sin, which is true, but only as that's tied to the center that we're united to Christ. Or we could have talked about how in baptism we are no longer old people, but we're new. But why? Because we're united to Christ. Or we could have talked about any one of the wonderful promises that baptism shows, but every single one of them is pointing to the center of the wheel and saying, as you understand what Jesus did, that is how much you will understand what baptism is showing you. This baptism and what Jesus did is not some mystery. It's not some mystical, religious, quasi thing we're doing that, ooh, as she goes into the water, something mass mystical is happening. No, Jesus clearly died for our sins publicly. He was clearly raised. Someone is clearly saying, look, all that's happening here is I'm trusting in Christ, and I want to be fully immersed in him but knowing what baptism is then allows us to ask well why should we be baptized well first because we want to show the wonderful picture of the gospel baptism is all about christ and we should want both individually and corporately to see people baptized because we want to see the story of the king of the world jesus who has come declared but second we should want to be baptized because we want to obey christ what does he say, Matthew 28? Go and make disciples, baptizing them. Thus the individual who professes faith and the people who have led them to Christ should want them to be baptized because we want to be obedient, because we love Christ. We want to keep his commandments. You know, at one time I was interacting with a man who was regularly attending the church I was at, and he was professing faith in Christ, but he was saying, I don't want to be baptized. And I talked to him and explained why we should be baptized. 
And at the end, he said, well, I just, I just don't really want to. And then he said, and I really don't think I should unless I feel led to do it. And yet that really kind of reverses what it means to be a Christian. You know, a Christian is a follower of Christ. A Christian is someone who's repented of their sins and said, says, Jesus is now my Savior and Lord. It'd be like me saying, hey, I want to play follow the leader, but I'm not going to follow what they say. Well, then I'm not playing follow the leader. That's how you play the game. You can't say, I'm following Christ, but if I really don't feel like what he's wanting me to do is what I think I should do, then I'm not going to follow him on that one. Well, you're either following him or not. Now, yes, it'll be imperfectly. No one is claiming that following Christ will need perfection. That's why we need baptism. We need to be forgiven and made new. We need to be cleansed. And yet we should want to obey because it's our first sign. Look, I'm no longer living a life where I call the shots. I've confessed that's my sin, that I want to call the shots, and I've repented of that, and I now trust Christ to cleanse me. And so baptism is showing a clear willingness publicly to follow Christ. Now, to be clear, getting dunked in water does not save you. It's nothing mystical. You know, we're not baptized to be saved, but as a response, since we are saved. This is clearly seen in John 3 when Jesus is talking to Nicodemus when he says, you must be born again. You know, none of us had any part in being born physically. We didn't send a text to our parents and say, hey, I'd like to be born September 15th. Can you work that out? We didn't do anything. We're born. We come into existence. Same truth spiritually. We must be born again. God must completely work in us. He must do everything. And our, all we're doing is responding, saying he has caused me to be born again, and I want to show that by being bapti- baptized. You know, baptism is merely a physical sign of what is spiritually true, a physical sign of a spiritual reality. And again, to refer to the wedding rings, having a wedding ring doesn't mean you're married. Anybody can go buy a wet wedding ring and put it on. That doesn't mean you're married. Just having it, just getting baptized doesn't mean you're a Christian. The point is that someone else has made that promise to you and you're affirming that you've received that promise. And so we need to be clear that yes, baptism is a sign that we've trusted Christ, but just because you're baptized doesn't necessarily mean it's true that you have personally received him. This also helps us see several reasons why we should not want to be baptized you shouldn't want to be baptized because i never get communion and that juice looks really good you shouldn't want to be baptized because boy my parents sure get happy when that other child is baptized so i should do that because i want to make them happy on the flip side i shouldn't want my children to be baptized because then i can check oh i'm a good parent because that has nothing to do with my parenting has everything to do with god's grace and so we shouldn't want baptisms to do anything about we feel better in ourselves. As well, we shouldn't try as a church to manipulate baptisms so we feel better about what we're doing. Ah, six baptisms in 2020. Check. Let's get that number to eight in 2021. Sadly, churches in good intentions do things that I think are long-term spiritually damaging. You know, one large church tries to have instantaneous baptisms in their service, and yet they've said in their documents the way they do that is they have people already planted and so when they say if you want to be baptized get up now they will stand up because they want to 
get the people going. Well, that's manipulative. The Spirit of God doesn't need us to manipulate people into coming to new life. He'll do it. You know, another church in their baptistry is built with a fire truck. And when the person is baptized, I'm assuming only children, the sirens go off and confetti shoots out. No, I'm sure their baptisms increased after they put that, but is it helping children really understand the cost and the joy of following Christ? There's both. Or does it make them go, that was pretty cool. I want to do that. And we need to show both. There is joy in following Christ. And as we saw in Luke 12, there's a cost that may come with it. So we should want baptisms because we love the story of the gospel and we want to see another person who's been wrapped into it, immersed into it. Someone new has come to trust in it. They've come to see the seriousness of their sin against God. And they've trusted in Jesus alone to forgive, restore, and make them new. Well, so there's an order here. Once we know what baptism is and why we should want people to be baptized, then we can answer the other questions. Well, who should be baptized? Well, the refrain over and over in the New Testament is believe and be baptized. So who should be baptized? Those who have believed in Christ, believers' baptism. In regards to when, well, it's when we know there's genuine faith and repentance. Now, in the first few centuries of the church, they would have someone who was interested in being a Christian. They would make them a catechumen, a student, and they would have them wait two years in training before they would baptize them. Now, that is clearly too long. However, there should be some level of awareness that they actually understand the gospel. You know, in an American society where many people think a Christian means I am not. Well, I'm not a Buddhist. I'm not a Muslim. I'm not an atheist. I'm American. I'm Christian. Well, that's not what being a Christian is. So we need to make sure before we baptize someone, you actually know what your sin is. You've actually trusted in Christ and repented. Now, we could get really legalistic and you need to reach this threshold of sanctification. That's not what we're talking about. We're not looking for perfection. We're asking that they understand and clearly are responding to the gospel. That's when we want to baptize them. So what, why, when, who, when, and finally, how? Well, the clearest thing is we baptize them in the name of the Father, the name of the Son, the name of the Holy Spirit. We baptize them in the Trinitarian formula because that's what we're commissioned to do. That's how we do it. Along with this, we do it by immersion because that's what baptizo means. Now, I fully understand there are other words used in the New Testament that talk about what Christ did. For example, in the Old Testament, it talks about the blood of the sacrifice was sprinkled on the animals. And we know that Jesus was the Lamb of God who came to take away the sin of the world. And then even the New Testament uses this language. For example, Hebrews 10.22 says, Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, and with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Or in the Old Testament, oil was often poured on the heads to anoint people. And when Jesus instituted communion, he says, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. And so, yes, there are other images that the Bible uses to talk about our cleansing. However, what is the word that God used when he wanted us to understand the depth of it? Baptism, which means to immerse. And Jesus was not just sprinkled with God's wrath. He was immersed under it. 
And so we want to give the clearest, the fullest picture of what happened to Christ and then is happening to us in union with him. And so we believe we should baptize by immersion, showing to the greatest extent we can a picture of what Christ has done for us. Lastly, as noted several times through the sermon, we should baptize with joy and solemnity. Joy in the amazing truth that God has come down and he has made a way that we can know him. Joy that Jesus rose again, that he conquered sin and the devil. Joy knowing that we can be made completely new people. And yet seriousness, because this took the life of God's only son. Seriousness, because this is a submission in which we're dying to ourselves and living for him. Seriousness, because this might mean conflict on this earth. So we come with joyful solemnity, if you can have such a thing, with eager dread, realizing the cost of what is free. Yet the ultimate question is not, can you articulate all the fine-tuned details of baptism? But have you come to trust Christ? Have you been immersed with him so that you no longer face God's wrath, but it was placed on Jesus? You know, have you come to personally trusted in Christ yourself? You know, it doesn't matter if you were raised in a Christian home. It doesn't matter what your parents believe or what your family or your spouse believes. The question is, what do you believe? Do you personally trust Christ? Have you personally been baptized spiritually into him? Well, if so, then come so we can baptize you physically to show the new life that God has brought forth in you. Don't just rely on, well, I've always gone to church, or yeah, I'm a Christian, I do that. Come personally to trust him even today. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we delight to hear again the joyful and yet sorrowful news of what you've done for us in Christ. Oh Lord, may we have that mixture of joy and sorrow, dread and anticipation, knowing that we are united to your Son and he has made a way that we might have fellowship with you. We pray all these things in his name. Amen.